Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast. Welcome. And we're back to talk about Warren Buffett style investing, and we're not going to belabor you about that. We're just going to get right into it. <laughs> we decided that we've been doing this podcast for a year and a half, and uh, if you're brand new to it, there is a plethora of episodes in which you should go back and listen to them and figure out uh, what this podcast is what all about. What it's all about. And it's all about rule number one investing. And you're in luck, new people, because we um, are doing a whole series on back to basics yeah. right now. Yeah. And we are in part five of back to basics. Yeah. Part five of a multi-part series. Which, Un- unclear how many parts there will be. Yeah, unclear. And we're, we're basically going down Charlie Munger's list of four things that are what investing is all about as opposed to speculation. And those four things are this. Are you capable of understanding? Is there an intrinsic characteristic that protects the company from competition? Is management talented and do they have integrity? And is there a margin of safety? Now, did you just do that so that I wouldn't play Charlie for everybody? Oh, you're going to play Charlie? <laughs> I was going to play Charlie. Yeah. Let's, we'll Fine. play Charlie in the next time. We'll play Charlie next time. Yeah. So let's talk about, um, we've talked about being capable of understanding the business. Um, we've gone into that. And now we're going to go deeper uh, as we get into this idea of an intrinsic characteristic that protects the business. And this is hugely important. There's nothing on that list of four things that isn't hugely important. But yeah. this is... Very hugely important. They come off really like as though they're really easy and simple. Because because this is why I like to have Charlie talk because he always says how easy and simple they are. And, yeah. Um, how there's really nothing more to be said, and then you discover that we've been talking about it now for like twenty hours or something. And uh, and if you like Google some of these things, you can find tons of stuff online of pe- stuff people have written about them. I mean, obviously, there's a lot to say. It's, it's a huge thing, when, just to hark back to capable of understanding as this first point, is that these things are screens, and you start with capable of understanding. Yeah, they're and in you a don't specific get to order. That. Yeah, you don't go on to the next piece until you've cleared, am I capable of understanding this business? And we say that, of course, in the theoretically perfect world. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, I go jumping on all the time past You that. do. <laughs> And I do, too, because I feel like every business is like every publicly traded business seems really complicated to me. And like, I probably can't understand it at first, at first glance, at first read, at first notice. So, yeah, but when you've been doing this a while, you start to discover that there's definitely some very hard businesses to understand that Buffett would even consider to be a six foot bar that you have to jump over, which requires this huge effort. And which has the possibility of failure. You may not clear the bar. Yeah. Um, And he has always talked about wanting to jump over a six-inch bar, something that is so easy to do that you really don't have to think much about, really, am I capable of understanding the business? It's just obvious that you understand it. But that's, you know, after a lifetime of investing as well, a lifetime of reading a lot of stuff and gradually becoming better and better at the things you focus on. And so we, we, you know, we'd be in trouble if we haven't already lived a lifetime. Lots of us have been around a while. And we can kind of use our existing experience as a beginning point for whether we're capable of understanding businesses or not. You know, where do we shop? 
Where do we work? Where, what do we, what's our passions? What do we love to do? All right. So and that gives us like a baseline yeah, of capability. That's your baseline. And of capability. that's not to say that the baseline won't change over time. And, and it certainly should. As I start to read more about companies that are publicly traded, I'm learning that I, my baseline of, of capability is changing, is getting higher, getting lower, getting lower, getting higher. It's your changing. baseline of capability. It's, my baseline is getting lower. Yes. Lower. Yower. Yeah, you're not raising. Lower. Lower's better. Yeah, Lower's yeah. better. It's Lower's easier. Be- it's easier. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, this, this first bit about being capable of understanding the business is something that most commentators on the Buffett Munger style of investing blow right by it. Right. As if you're supposed to be able to value every business out there. And yeah. And they, they immediately get bogged down in how hard that is. And, you know, you, you, you end up strangling yourself on, on the vast majority of businesses, which you may not be capable of understanding. Well, it's funny because it's like you can easily go either direction with that one. You can easily be like, well... Obviously, I'm capable of un- capable of understanding any business. Or you can go, well, obviously, I'm really not capable of understanding any complicated publicly traded business. And it's so easy to just say either one, and everyone will, will nod their heads and sure. agree with you. But um, let's lean toward the latter. Well, really, we're all somewhere in the middle. Well, I'm I'm leaning way toward the latter. Uh, like um, I'm not capable of understanding any public business. Is a lot safer place to be. Then oh, I can understand all of them. It's it's the the mistake that people make when they have problems with investments, is that they've they've climbed away from they've moved outside of their circle of competence where they're comfortable and they understand what's going on, and they've moved outside that circle without knowing that they've moved outside the circle. Well, what you just said is terrifying. Yeah, which is good. You should be worried about that because that's where you'll get burned. Yeah. So let's start with a very sort of humble beginning here. Oh, you're using my word. (laughs) (laughs) And let's recall that this is a practice. That's right. This This is is a a practice. And we're humble in our practice. We're humble in our practice because every day is a little bit step forward, maybe a little bit step backward. Just keep it up. I'm repeating this to myself because this is what I tell myself. Just keep it up. Find find something to do in this regard every day. Yeah. And so capable of understanding means um, I think I've got a grip on this thing, but stay within that sort of humble start where you can say, I think I do, but I don't know for sure that I do. And then you start to dig in and you start to read a lot about the business. So let's just, I, I like to talk about Chipotle Mexican Grill all the time because it's a fairly simple business. They make burritos. They are natural, quick food. Um, you just and they sort of pioneered that category. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not hard to understand them. You go in and you can look and see what the business is. Most of the working parts are right there in front of you. And um, and so you start with this idea that gee, I, can I can I get a grip on this business? Now, how would you start to develop? Your understanding of Chipotle. What would you do? I would go buy a burrito. That's exactly right. That sounds really good right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how you begin to understand Chipotle. And while you're buying the burrito, what else might you do? I would ask the employees if they're happy. Yes. Exactly. And they'll probably lie and say yes. <laughs> and if they don't, that's a big red flag, that's right? True they're too. not even willing to lie for the for the flagship company. 
So, and who else could you talk to down there that might be a font of information? Well, you're probably thinking of customers, but I think that's kind of obnoxious. Well, it could be obnoxious. I'm thinking of two two different parties. One are customers. Okay. And the other one is the manager. Oh. Like, the managers will always talk to you. And they're certainly going to be waving the flag of the company, right? Um, and you want to talk to them about whether they own stock in the company. Do they like the company? Tell some, tell me, you know, why aren't you working for, what is it, Qdoba or whatever the name is? <laughs> Qdoba. Qdoba. Do you know I have never been in a Qdoba and I don't have a reason why? I think I've just like never seen one when I felt like having a burrito. What's that other burrito place that's around a lot too? Um, like Taco Bell? Well, Taco Bell, but they're that's in a whole, whole other, different world. Yeah. Yeah. There's another burrito place? Yeah, I always forget the name of it. I see it around some sometimes. But um, nothing is like Chipotle in my experience. <laughs> so th- that's the first way you do it. Like, clearly, I vastly prefer a Chipotle burrito to any of the other ones that are in the market. Have you, I mean, been, have you been to, to Qdoba? No, well, once, yeah. Once. But I didn't love it. And I didn't love this other one either, a big chain. I'll have and to go Taco check it out. Bell isn't even remotely close no, at it's, all. No, it's just separate. It's just a whole separate Yeah, thing. it's just, you know, not even close. And so I'm, I'm really a big fan. And that's a huge thing right there. But wait a second. So you really will, I mean, actually, I can totally imagine you doing this. Hmm. You really will walk into a Chipotle like, they're busy. They're doing their jobs. I think it's one thing to, like, ask somebody while they're sort of making your burrito, like, two questions or something. But you really would, like, ask them to go get the manager to come away from whatever they're doing. Well, if the place is slammed, as they often are, yeah, that's not the best time to do okay. it. But you might want to go... It just seems kind of... When it's really know, slowed rude. down a lot. I mean, drop in at 830 at night. Nobody's in there and, you know, the place right. is closing down. And, I'll take your point on that one. Yeah. So you just talk here. John Templeton kind of pioneered this idea that he called scuttlebutt, and Warren Buffett thought that that was such a great idea. He the calls idea, it scuttlebutt. Yeah, Templeton. That's did. such an old-fashioned word. Oh, that's he's so an old-fashioned cute. guy. That's he's so back from cute. the '40s and '50s and '60s. No, Dad, it's windage. Remember? Ah, we're calling it windage. Windage. Okay. So the idea being that you can dig up information from people about this company by talking to people. Now, what else could you do? Where else could you get a lot of information about a company? Google. Google. Google is a gigantic scuttlebutt machine. Yeah, that's, right? that's basically what it is. And so you can also go to places like Glassdoor. Where is they, that a website? It's a website which where the employees rate their CEO anonymously. What? Oh, that's yeah. a really good idea. Glassdoor is awesome. Okay. You can get an idea of how badly people hate their CEO. I'm writing this down. Yeah. And yeah, you know, it's also a place where people can go to try to find a job and all that kind of stuff. So Glassdoor oh, okay. is a good resource. Um, people will rate their company. They'll tell you all the, all about it. And, of course, you have to realize that, you know, a company like IBM is a great example because they're undergoing, you know, once in, you know, several decades shift off of their old products onto a whole new product line. Mm. And when that happens, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs because they're the old product people. Hmm. And then their services are no longer needed, and they get very irate, as you can imagine, and start to really chew up the company. And then you still got to start asking why the company can't use these people on new projects. What can they only do one thing? Well, it's sort of like when when IBM. It's easier to see if you look back in history. IBM shifted over from a um, a kind of a 
print card sort of company, they, a stamping company, mm-hmm. into a computer like Univac back in 1950. And the people that knew how to do this one thing, a calculating machine with lots of levers and stuff, mm-hmm. had no clue about this other machine. It was an entirely different world, a whole new paradigm. You're saying like a totally different engineering. Yeah, totally different engineering. And IBM laid off pretty much most of its engineering workforce, its whole R&D department. Jeez. Oh, yeah. That That just seems really dumb to me. But they couldn't, They, you know, it's an entirely different talent set. I mean, imagine today that you've got a whole bunch of engineers that are really good at building mainframe computers. Yeah. They do hardware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you no longer are building mainframe computers. You're you're now going to the cloud. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you get the engineers from there to go over there? I don't know. <laughs> well, maybe if the alternative is losing their job, they might be a little more <laughs> open to it. I don't know. It's like it's almost I mean, like get, saying somebody's what you're saying. You're saying the skills are so totally different that they're really not transferable. Yeah. But I, that I think, sucks. I think IBM thinks that. And so they're, they're going through that right now. So the whole point was that Glassdoor is going to have a lot of criticism on it, as will the Internet, when you're going through a paradigm change in your yeah. company. Well, it's probably also a little bit like looking up like <laughs> fever symptoms on WebMD and discovering that you probably have cancer. Because <laughs> <laughs> <Who is> that? <laughs> that's what people go on the Internet to do, is to find out the worst. <laughs> So the idea is that you get a kind of a gut feel that you're capable of understanding, and then you use Google and personal visits and talking to people. Your great-grandfather was phenomenal at this, by the way. He just a Arkansas... He was a scuttlebutt master. Scuttlebutt master. <laughs> I never went in a, in a grocery store with my grandfather in my life that he didn't end up in some lengthy conversation with the teller. <laughs> or the, the teller at the bank, or the, the checkout lady at the store, or the assistant manager. He just loved to talk to people and find out what they were doing and what they were thinking. And that's all you got to do. It's just start up a conversation about the company, you know? Yeah, all right. Yeah, and I think I think also going online is a good point, because a lot of people don't live close to a Chipotle, yep. you know? I don't live close to a Chipotle. Well, online's fantastic. And, of course, go to seekingalpha.com one of my other favorite websites we've talked about before, and look for the people who are interested in shorting the business mm. or who think it's not a good future. And they will they will tell you all the reasons why, and they'll try to make a really good case for why this is a bad investment. And um, you really have to understand that position even better than the person who wrote it up. You always want to... Um, Charlie Munger said you always want to invert your argument. So if you're making a case or an argument that, you know, Chipotle Mexican Grill is a great company, you want to really understand why people would argue that it's not. Because the price of Chipotle is in stasis, right? It's 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 trapped between the people who think it should go down and they're selling mm. and the people who think it should go up and they're buying. Mm-hmm. And that price is trapped and locked in to a kind of a natural... Tug of war. Uh, pausing place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As a result of this, too. And I mean, both groups may think the price is wrong. You know, the group that are buying it think it should be much higher. And the group that are selling it think it should be much lower. Mm-hmm. And so that, that sort of argument is going on with real money out there in a big way. 
And you want to really understand what the logic is behind that. It's not, believe me, these people are not mostly making an emotional argument. There's a legitimate, rational argument for why they're getting out. And you need to know what it is. And that's part of, of coming to understand that business. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting process to go through. And not even getting to the point of like crafting the argument for and against a company in order to actually buy it. Like I feel like that's further down the road from what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Just from a level of, is this really something I can understand? Like still on that initial research level, I think reading that kind of like opposition research, so to speak, like that kind of anti that company mm -hmm. information mm -hmm. really gives a good sense of what to look for in that company. Totally agree. And if you can understand what people are talking about without too much work, I mean, not to say there might not be a little bit, but without too much work, then to me, like that's kind of where I go, oh, okay, I can get this. Like okay. I might not have it right this second, yeah. but I'm capable of it. Yeah. That's a good turning point. That's a very good turning point. So thinking about companies that would not like your company, yeah. <laughs> what companies would those be? Like the dead-on competitors, right? Right. Yeah. So figure out who's competing with Chipotle Mexican Grill. We named a couple of burrito places. They would be direct competition. Then you have indirect competition, people that are doing burger shops, maybe are indirect. But mostly it's going to be the direct other burrito places, right? They're going to go straight up against them. And if you call those people, they should be willing to give you lots of information about why Chipotle sucks. You could go ask the Kidoba people why yeah. they didn't open a Chipotle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the you, answer is probably there was already a Chipotle right across the street. Or that franchise is a million dollars and this one's 100000 Yeah, 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 exactly. More likely, right? Exactly. So you, 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 you want to end up understanding the arguments against this business better than the people who have made the argument against the business. You want to capture all of it. And this is what Templeton meant when he talked about scuttlebutt, is to just dig through. And the internet is the best scuttlebutt machine in the world. So definitely do that. And that takes us over to what I wanted to talk about today, which is this intrinsic, this is the second step, okay? So now you've gotten, you feel comfortable that you're capable of understanding this. You go, yeah, okay. I can handle this. And then you really want to understand this intrinsic characteristic that would protect the business from competition because that is going to be the thing that saves you from anything you didn't quite understand about the, the competition, about why people are selling this thing. Anything you missed is going to be the blow from that, the impact of that is going to be dulled if you have a big moat. Which is it's what we necessary, call it. but not sufficient. Yes, exactly right. All my lawyers out there who studied for the LSAT, <laughs> it was torture. <laughs> it's a necessary condition, meaning you have to have it, but it's not sufficient to actually finalize buying the company. That's right. So let's talk about what intrinsic characteristic means, okay? Okay. What does it mean? Something inherent to the business. Okay, and what's inherent mean for everybody that doesn't like big words? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Come on. Uh, it's Drill an, down. It's an integral component to the business being in existence. As in, without it, the business would not work. Yeah, yeah, okay. 
All right, good. I like that. So well, give me an you, example. What do you not like about that? Because uh, there's just, something The words are like. getting bigger. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you got it right. So give me an example of one. Um, an intrinsic characteristic of Chipotle, for example, I would say, is their commitment to healthy, sustainable food and, or, and preferably organic where they can get it. Okay, so let me push back a little bit. Okay. Does that mean if I came into this business with a company that was equally committed to food in this way, that I could not compete against Chipotle? No, you could, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's an intrinsic part of their business that makes them what they are. But that's not what a, a moat is. Well, we weren't, we weren't getting to a moat. We were just talking about intrinsic characteristics. That protects them against competition. Oh, we, do, we are adding that part yeah, in? Yeah, yeah. That protects them so, against competition. Okay, well, that part doesn't protect them against competition. Okay, but let me, let me just play lawyer here and push back against the pushback. So <laughs> if they're a fr- what, what they have is, a, is kind of one of the first movers into this world where they're, they're creating a brand around their company that says we are all about natural healthy, um, sustainable agriculture, quality care for animals. Um, We don't use antibiotics. We don't use this. We don't use that. Um, If they're the first one in the door, and then I come along and say, hey, me too, my me too might not make me competitive. I may not be able to, to, if I'm making burritos exactly the way Chipotle makes them, and coming out with exactly the same statements across the board, I may not do very well. True. And I think what you're saying is Chipotle stands for those things. Yes. So it's a brand. Yes. But I think that the weakness of a brand moat is that if I do open a new Mexican restaurant that has those same commitments and I make a better burrito, then my brand is going to become also very strong and maybe stronger True. than Chipotle's. And let's take a couple of examples. I don't in know fast how you would make business. a better burrito, but let's assume. I know, exactly. Let's stipulate. <laughs> <laughs> so we can look at examples of that. So um, we have the, in the Burger Wars, we have McDonald's, Jack in the Box, Burger King, Wendy's, Sonic, Wendy's, um, and there's more. And then there's the five guys that have just come into the business. Well, that's a whole other. See, that's more along the lines of a Chipotle. Where it's more yeah. like gourmet style. Right, right. So it's all about taste rather than quickness. So there's, there, I guess the, the point is the same thing, let's say, in the jeans business, right? I can have Abercrombie and Fitch. I can do Gap. I can do different kinds of jeans companies. In other words, there's room in this market. These markets are huge. That you can be the first mover like Chipotle, and then there can be another Quidoba that comes in behind you mm-hmm. and copies everything you do. But you maintain your momentum because by the time they start, you've already got 2,000 restaurants and your name is a household name. And then by the time they get to 100 restaurants, you have 3,000. Mm-hmm. And you simply just keep growing. And that was like this, the amazing impact of what McDonald's did in the burger world, right? They have 45,000 restaurants now compared to, let's say, 15,000 for Jack in the Box. Jack, they've been around forever. Dairy Queen's been around forever, but it couldn't. Mm-hmm. It couldn't continue to build out like that. McDonald's had a better idea. So this this thing that, that they have, Chipotle has, is an intrinsic characteristic that protects it from competition that is a very strong brand. That brand is huge. It's huge. And 
and this is, I think, always something good for me to keep in mind about moats, they're breachable. Oh, yeah. Like, brands can go away. Let's, let me make that point. How many companies that started, let's say, in 1900 are still around here in 2016? <laughs> I don't know how many, but I'm going to say not many. Not many. Handful. Handful. Okay. So the truth about business is that it is the fastest way to make a lot of money that anybody ever dreamed up, right? <laughs> That's just the truth because businesses that are growing grow the uh, compounded rate of return of a growth business like a Chipotle is 20% a year, 25% a year for a decade or two decades. Walmart went on for like three decades at 20% a year. This is, it's a stunning number, right? It means you take your $10,000 and you, you've doubled it seven or eight times. 10,000 to 20, 40, 80, 160, 326, 40, 1 million, 2, 2 million, 5. Hmm. So one to, $1 million to $2 million on your $10,000 from a business, right? Gold doesn't do that. Real estate doesn't do that. So businesses do that. And, and because they can grow so much, um, it is possible that a business can finally reach a, a place where it can't grow any farther. And then it starts to decline. Level off. And level off, right. Levels off and kind of becomes a cash cow. Maybe not decline. And maybe not decline. Seas candy is still going. 4% growth per year. Yeah, it just might not be quite as precipitous. Right, not at all. And yet it's still a great company. Buffett bought it for $25 million and now it's producing $65 million a year in, in uh, owner cash flow. Mm. So, um, but businesses have a life and they, they can decline um, and often do. Um, businesses that make it 100 years are, are very unusual. Therefore, when we buy one of these things, we have to kind of get a sense of where we're at in that process, right? Yeah. How is point. that moat doing at protecting me good against point. this competition? That's part of being capable of understanding that too. Absolutely. I mean, some moats are a lot easier than others. If you take a look at, um, at let's say, Burlington Northern Railroad. Yeah, you've mentioned that one yeah, before. They have railroad tracks that go from Long, Long Beach, California to Chicago. And, you know, it's very tough to compete with them for moving freight to Chicago because you'd have to buy railroad tracks and there aren't any. <laughs> so what's that kind of moat called? That moat is a toll bridge moat. We toll call it bridge. a toll bridge. Because nobody else can come in because of some sort of regulation or, or what, like physical limitations yep. on literally on having a railroad. Yep. So with, with uh, Burlington Northern... This toll bridge is that they're the only guys, there's only one other, so there's two companies, I think, that have tracks that go to Chicago. So if you want to move stuff to Chicago, that's absolutely the only way you're going to go, hmm. right? You could drive a truck to Chicago, but it wouldn't be nearly as inexpensive. And so they have, like, um, they have a bridge to get from A to B here, right, from A to B over this bridge, and you have to pay the toll. And so the, the, the best example is, people who live in Marin County and go into San Francisco. Over the Golden Gate. Over the Golden Gate Bridge. Yes. Right? <laughs> and you pay the toll. Yes. I don't know what it is now. What is it, five bucks? I don't know what it is either, but it seems really expensive. I remember that. You did it every day. Yeah. But your alternative to not pay the toll is to drive north through San Rafael, cross the Richmond Bay Bridge, and then come back south past Berkeley and then crawl over the Oakland Bay Bridge, 
none of which are a toll, but which cost you more than $5 of gas. <laughs> so it makes no sense. It would take you an hour in a, good, in a good drive to do it, and it would cost you more in gas. So you're going to pay the toll. Yeah. That's exactly the case with Burlington Northern Railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. Toll bridge moats are really powerful. They're almost pure monopolies. Uh, PG&E Electric has that toll bridge moat in California. Mm. It's not the only way to get power in California, but it's the only reasonable way for a homeowner to get power. Right? If they weren't subsidizing solar panels, then it would be pretty much the only way people would ever get power. Um, Southern Companies has that same moat here. A um, little company called Laclede Gas has the natural gas uh, regulated moat and as a utility for St. Louis, for Kansas City, hmm. for Birmingham, Alabama, hmm. right? Um, so these kind of moats are, are phenomenal because they're virtual monopolies. What are the other kinds of moats? So we uh, have brand, yep. we have toll bridge. Yep. So a brand is a kind of an intangible moat that you build up over time so that when people think about the the product they don't think about the product generic type they think about the product in your name in other words i don't think let's go get a burrito i think let's go get a chipotle burrito i don't think let's go get a coke i think or excuse me a cola <laughs> a cola i think let's go get a coke or if i'm a pepsi fan let's go get a pepsi mm-hmm. it's and, and i don't think about getting a motorcycle i think about getting a harley or a honda right so there's there um they have a very strong mind share, this intangible thing called a brand. The second one, this toll bridge moat that we talked about, um, the third one is what's called a price moat and is something like Walmart, Costco, Bed Bath & Beyond. What they do is they have the ability uh, to produce or create the product or service cheaper than anybody else on the planet. They're the low-cost provider. Low-cost provider. So we call that a price moat. But the key to that isn't that they can sell the thing cheap, because anybody can sell it cheap for a while and then go broke. The key is that they have a profit margin at the lowest possible price. Hmm. So they're the last guy standing. So they can sustain it. Exactly. Whereas other companies may not be able to. And that means that if competition comes into their arena, they will use that low cost uh, of production to put the other guy out of business. They'll mm-hmm. just drop their prices and lower their profit margin, assuming that this other this other company cannot sustain business without making a profit, and then they'll go broke. And this is exactly what's happening in the oil fields right now, is that Saudi Arabia um, and other OPEC companies uh, and are teaming up with Russia um, to basically put American fracker drillers out of business. Because they know that their oil can be drilled at $12, $15 a barrel, and they can still make money. Whereas the frackers in North Dakota and Texas have to have $40, $50, $60 a barrel, or they can't produce the oil at a profit. So initially what happened is Saudi Arabia just said, we're just going to keep pumping oil, and the oil price will go down because there's an oil glut. So effectively what they did is they used the power of their low-cost provider— to drive oil into a huge oversupply, which meant inevitably the price would fall below the production costs of their competitors. Hmm. And now half of the oil companies, the oil exploration companies in America, have gone bankrupt by the end of this year. It's an interesting way to frame it because frackers go for natural gas, not oil. Oh, no, they do both. 
fracking produces oil now? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. See, this is why... Fracking's always produced oil. No, it produces natural gas. Well, they do both. The way... Well, the way okay, just so you know. The way fracking works is they take... They push water down an oil well... That's right. ...at 10,000 PSI. And what it does is it goes into the cracks in the earth and cracks them more. Mm -hmm. And what that does is release oil and gas that is trapped because it can't flow through the tiny crack, but it can throw th flow through the bigger crack. And when that happens, then they collect that oil, and, and it's expensive. So um, fracking, yeah, fracking is definitely oil So fracking is producing oil now. And gas. Always did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a way of, of uh, expanding. Initially, it started off as a way of how can we expand the life of this well. All right, I'll take your word for it. Yeah. So this is why when you asked me how long it would take me to understand the oil industry well enough to <laughs> invest in it, I said something like 400 hours of research. <laughs> <laughs> I want nothing to do with this whole regulatory international nightmare of the oil industry, not to mention technology. I was just in. reading some guy that would agree with you completely. He said, I don't want to be the warrior. I want to be the guy selling him guns. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with that guy. <laughs> Which his way of saying was we should go out and look at a couple of companies that provide stuff to the oil field industry, right? Yes. So um, so that's that's uh, the the price moat is a huge moat and and um, um, some companies have it. Uh, CF Industries, for example, in the agricultural fertilizers has a wonderful price moat. And that makes them the last man standing when when the prices come down after a glut. So in a commodity business like oil or fertilizer, having a low-cost provider is a moat, and a fabulous moat. Hmm, okay. Um, so that's three of them. So price, we're at brand, toll bridge, and price. Right, and then you have two more. Um, one is called a switching moat, which is what IBM, Apple, and, um, and Microsoft, and your dentist have. Hmm. or your accountant, um, they, there's a lot of pain involved in switching from one provider to another provider hmm. in some cases. That is true. Like there's no pain at all involving me switching from Ford trucks to Dodge trucks. Yeah. No problem. Yeah. But to switch from my accountant to another accountant is a huge problem because now that person has to come up to speed on years and years of, of accounting, I just I just don't. And you gotta just, like gather your paperwork and send it over, and it's right. just a huge pain, and you don't want to do it. Right. Yeah. Or let's say you have a doctor that is used to you know is used to to examining you, and you just the personal intrusion of some other person doing it might yeah. stop you from switching. Or you have your entire life on your iPhone and your Apple computer and your iPad. Yes. And iCloud now. Or your PC. <laughs> or your PC. Yeah. And switching is a huge pain. I mean, it's not that it can't be done and people do it all the time, but it's a huge pain. It's a pain. And they and do that on purpose, of course. Oh, of course. So that's a big moat, um, switching moat. Um, it is, in fact, what probably gives IBM its likelihood that it'll make the shift from this, you know, hardware-driven company for many, many years to the cloud and become a full-service-oriented company. Completely different IBM is going to emerge after this changeover, and it can do it because it has so much customer control. 
it's, you know, for 50, 60 years been the company you would go to if you're a bank, if you're a hospital, mm-hmm. a health provider. You know, they own 70, 80, 90 percent of those markets. And, and as a result, it's very hard for those companies to shift over and suddenly start using Amazon. You know, it's like they, they have a legacy pile of stuff back there. And it's very tough to move it over. The weakness of that one is obviously, yes, it might be hard to switch, but you can. It's not impossible. Yeah, you, you can always switch. And if the competitor's product is genuinely better, everyone's going to start switching. It's going to become yep. worth it. Yep. The pain might, or the actual like hours or process might be the same, but maybe the pain that you feel is lessened a little bit because you're looking forward to a better product. Yep. And so what IBM has to do, and every company that's making this shift, uh, running behind the competition, as they are, mm-hmm. is to acquire those companies that are providing that ahead of them. And they're doing that very rapidly. They're taking all of that huge cash flow that they get from their legacy businesses, and they're acquiring solutions for their customers to make it easy for the customer to stay with them mm. in this shift. Yeah, so, I think of Nokia back before the iPhone existed. Like, everyone used Nokia. Sure. Everyone. Sure. And I remember I read an article about, like, how their stock was so good back then. I mean, Blackberry is another Blackberry great example. Blackberry is a huge example of that, yeah. Um, but Nokia, I think, is particularly amusing because really, like, in personal phones, everyone used one. And it was, like, the flip phone was, like, the coolest. Yeah. And then iPhone came out, and it was... Instant. There was no pain to switch because yeah. the alternative was so good. Yeah. I mean, it was on, obviously, it changed the entire world. It was on a completely different plane. Yep. And in that way, the mode disappeared Yep. overnight. Yep. That's really true. But it wasn't entirely overnight. You could, if you were, I, I mean, I remember this really well because I used to go through phones. I don't know if you remember, you're probably a little too little, but... I went through a phone every six months looking for something that would solve the smartphone problem. And yeah. each company had a different one and they had a different interface and there was this one and that one and this one and that one. I probably went through eight or ten phones in four or five years and then the iPhone came out, done. Done. <laughs> Just like that. Done. So, I mean, to me, I could see that one coming a miles away, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There weren't any really good solutions back then. Like, I had one of the first Palm Pilots. And they tried to create a switching moat, wherein like it was difficult to get your information out. I don't even know if you could, actually. I don't know if there was a way to transfer it into any other um, personal device, whatever that's called, kind of software. Um, but clearly, like the second the iPhone came out, nobody cared. I mean, mm. I think I probably manually inputted all of my contacts. Sure. Whatever it into, takes. Whatever I'm it moving. took. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So th- that's a really good point, is that Really, there's no such thing as a moat that can prevent competition forever. There's always a possibility of competition taking you out. So you have well, to stay up on top of Well, that your point on how companies disappear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what's the fifth moat? The fifth one is called a secrets moat. And this would be something like Pfizer and Merck have in the pharmaceutical business where they get patents on drugs. Um, the EpiPen, the latest heinous example of uh, people mm-hmm. over over uh, pricing their their patented and protected secret products, um, but Coca Cola also has trade secrets and which have protected it for a long time, and 3M uh, does has secrets which they don't patent um, because they don't want anybody to know how they're doing it. Yes, so, that's the, the the common dilemma with patents <laughs> exactly. is that when you patent something, you have to tell everyone how you make it. Yeah, they just aren't allowed to do it for a period of time. Yeah. 
yep. a long time, but still, yep. it does tell them exactly how to do it. So there's our there's our major five ways of looking at this thing, and you, you may want to add a sixth, and that's the, what's called the network effect, oh, which, what's that which is relatively new. It's the eBay effect, which is you you stack on you know fifteen people who are who are out on eBay um, doing auctions, and you don't have much of a company. You put 15 million people on eBay who are auctioning stuff, and you have amazing company. So the network effect is that you end up with enough customers under your umbrella mm-hmm. that it gives you enormous protection against competition hmm. uh, because so they can't like they can't combo, rise to that. It's kind of like a combo of brand and switching. Yeah, I mean Google sort of has that. Google's a secrets thing. Usually, there's some sort of you know, there's no real secret to the way eBay is doing it. It's just they were the first mover, and they built up this network effect to a point where they're really hard to compete with, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Amazon's working on it, right? But they're coming from this huge other thing that they can bring in. Yeah, but, I mean, if something shows up that's better than eBay, it's not hard to switch. No, it's not hard to switch. Well, it's kind of like... Friendster. <laughs> remember Friendster? Well, Facebook is another example, actually. Well, do you remember Friendster? Not really. My point exactly. Yeah. Because it was the it was before Facebook. It yeah. was a social network. Or, or MySpace, which with Justin Timberlake like invested in and then announced he was gonna bring back MySpace. Well, he has not brought back MySpace. Definitely not. Because it's a pain to switch and there's no reason to when everybody's on Facebook. And I I used to call these things brands, and I probably would still call it a brand. Because there's there's no secret about the way Facebook does what it does, mm-hmm. but you go there because you're going to get what you expect to get, which is access to everybody. Well, and also I have to say, I think Facebook's going down personally. Wow. Because That's don't, interesting. don't get offended, but as soon as parents showed up on Facebook, yeah, everybody stopped using it. Oh, and really? now it's now it's Instagram, now it's Snapchat. I mean, other ones too. So I am so clueless that I'm just beginning to use Facebook. <laughs> and I don't even know what those other things but are. But Facebook is staying relevant by coming up with new stuff. Like Facebook Live is a recent um, product that they unloaded and... Or unloaded, that's the word, Unveiled. And it's, you know, it's competing with, with Snapchat. It's competing with Instagram. They're clearly trying to bring people back from the oh, Periscope. That's another one. Nobody's really using Periscope, though, since Snapchat kind of stole their thing. So, Well, well people would kind of be wondering, like, where's the, where's the moat for these companies like this? And it's like, if you looked at Apple and you said, well, what these guys are is a technology company, then you should be very worried about the moat because there's somebody out there right now in a garage trying to wipe out Apple. So, it, you know, technology is classically difficult mode to sustain because technology by its very definition is what it uses creative destruction to move to the next generation. Yeah. And if the creative destruction doesn't come from you, it's going to come from your competition. Well, I think this is the interesting part of moats. Like, okay, so now we've defined them. We've defined them lots of times before on this podcast. The interesting part to me is figuring out which moat a company potentially has because I think it can be really confusing sometimes. Well, they can definitely have more than one moat. Like Coca-Cola is a big brand moat, right? Um, it And part of that brand moat is that it, it has such a position in the grocery store because it controls shelf space, 
which is really difficult to do, which is a kind of a toll bridge mode. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You can't get the shelf space, you can't cross the river. Well, people always say McDonald's is not a hamburger company. They say it's a real estate company. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, a cute laugh line. But it's true. They have better locations than other burger companies. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes it's as simple as that. You go to McDonald's because it's there. Yeah. So essentially, that's a toll. Yeah, that's uh, a total. I'm hungry and there's So it's McDonald's. a brand and a total. Yeah. And a total. And then Coca-Cola also has secrets. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, what it doesn't try to do is have a price brand. Coca-Cola is a premium price product, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You want to compete against Coca-Cola, about the only way to do it is to just be a low, cheap cola company. And nobody wants to do that. So just grocery stores do it to fill the space. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because they're already there. Yeah. But nobody's going to go out and, and start a cola company. Well, some people have tried. Hanson's tried, and they died. Um, Hanson's died? Oh, yeah. They weren't bought? They just died. And the same thing's going to happen with most of the other natural cola companies because it's so hard to compete against these guys. Um, Monster, actually, is one of the bigger successes, and they didn't compete directly against Coca-Cola. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now Coca-Cola decided it's easier to do a licensing deal with Monster than to actually try to compete with them. Hmm. Um, so, you know, first mover space is huge uh, in creating a brand. Once you've got the brand, it's very, very difficult for even a Coca-Cola to come in and compete with you. Yeah, that makes I mean, sense. Look at Red Bull and Monster. I mean, phenomenal. So how brands. do you decide if a moat... Okay, so let's say I've, I've, I've identified the moats. How do you decide if it's strong enough? I mean, is that where reading comes in? That's where a lot of reading comes in and being really understanding the business. And again, we just default to it if we're not really very sure we either keep reading until it gets too hard and we throw it away Mm -hmm. done or we arrive at the answer that we understand this thing and it either is a great investment or it isn't right and we just keep looking at these things until we're comfortable like charlie munger made a really great case to harvard business school about coca-cola being the perfect company and you could argue that was like 15 years ago. You could argue that today Coca-Cola is on the on you know is up against the ropes in some kind of way. You know, it's very difficult for Coca-Cola to grow because the of stock price has gone nowhere. Oh really? Yeah. Huh. And and well, and there's such a huge movement against sugary sodas. Oh yeah, two thirds of their sales are coming from overseas. Mm. American sales are going down. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, really, Coca-Cola's got to be looking for a landing place. I mean, Dasani Water is Coca-Cola. They're selling water, right? So, you know, there's always these attacks coming. And if, if Coke didn't have the brand that it has, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be in business today. That brand has protected it over these many years. So let's talk next time about more detail about uh, these other two secrets and, and switch modes. And let's get into some more examples because I want to kind of... I want to bring up some companies and see if you can figure out what the moat might be. Okay, sounds good. All right. Well, until then, time to go play. For part six next time of our multi-part series. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested, the Rule One podcast. If you like this episode, you can always get our show notes and more details and links to the resources we discussed at investedpodcast.com. Also, as long as you're online, head on over to investedpodcast.com slash workshop for details on an upcoming three-day live workshop that I'm hosting. All you gotta do to go is enter the special podcast code STOCKPILE, that's S-T-O-C-K-P-I-L-E, STOCKPILE, into the application form, and you guys can attend for free. 
So everything discussed on this show is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it is not to be taken as investment advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really do hope you've enjoyed it. So until next week, it's time to go play. See ya.